Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Booze, Booms and Busts, the podcast where we discuss market events while consuming some beers which we've not had before. Uh, on today's show, we've got Sam Volkering as ever, but we are also joined by Kit Winder, who was on a previous episode of the show and who is returning this time to consume, uh, consume more beers with us. Now, uh, this time around, we have managed to coordinate our beer selection. Uh, so we shall be having uh, today the same beers, or Sam and I shall be at least, while Kit has brought, uh, brought some of his own to add to, add to the list. Uh, but gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for joining us as ever. And uh, Sam, what's your, uh, let's start with you. What, what have you been looking at this week? I've, um, I've, I've weaned myself off of the GameStop saga and, and the Reddit Wall Street bets thread. Um, I did notice, although I, I did, I do just kind of check in the, in the morning. I noticed uh, the current uh, follower count on Wall Street bets on the Reddit thread uh, is over 8.6 million. Um, when I when I sort of joined it, when this sort of kicked off, I think it was just under two million. So it's it's forexed in like two weeks. I mean, if if our Wall Street bets was a stock, that'd be some pretty tasty ass returns. Um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people got wrecked in that. Um, so I've turned my attention back to crypto markets because it's booming again. Uh, and it's, it's, it's going a bit nuts with the uh, DeFi, which we have talked about, uh, you and I previously, uh, yeah. on this podcast, but, uh, DeFi is going all six shades of crazy at the moment. Yeah, I must say. You know, it has been pretty brutal to watch the Wall Street bets crowd. The last episode, just a week ago, I said, uh, you know, that I was afraid a lot of these guys were going to get hurt. And, you know, sadly, that, that that's occurred. I mean, I, you know, it was, it's good to see people taking sort of their, their financial destiny into their hands somewhat, but just taking reckless, um, you know, just buying something because somebody on the internet uh, you know, on a Reddit forum has said so is is not not conducive. I don't think to long term prosperity. Uh, so it's been uh, I, I've been watching that as well, and it's made me very sad. But it's not particularly surprising, sadly, either. But Kit, uh, tell us what have you been looking at this week? Because uh, you know you you focus on uh, some some different sectors from myself and Sam. Uh, to be fair, I have been pretty captivated by the GameStop stuff. Um... I guess one of the things I found interesting is the way everyone's getting so upset by a stock uh, trading at something that's so clearly divorced from its fair value, um, <laughs> which are, I guess maybe some of us would find amusing because we probably think that that's just happening very slowly in other stocks. Um, this is just the most visible appearance of it. Um, <coughs> Tesla. What? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I had to cut in there. When you're talking about the distortions of prices happening, um, it, it'd be it'd be remiss not to mention Tesla, especially when yeah. Elon tweets about GameStop, that stonks and GameStop and Doge and, and all that as well. And you've got an Ethernet cable right into my head. Tesla was exactly what I was referring to, I think. Um, and you know, I'm <laughs> I'm concerned that maybe more people are going to lose more money if Tesla uh, returns to its fair value. <laughs> if well i mean so what this does right so this is this is what i find so fascinating about all of it uh is the discussion and we've we've talked about this all of us on, on different occasions about what value actually is in assets anymore is it is it fundamental value with a multiple based on future potential earnings or growth or is it just what people think it should be worth or could be worth um, in their little dreamland or, you know, what, like <laughs> when, when the central bank just rampantly decides to alter monetary policy, you know, is, is it, is it just what, however much they can print and however much that inflates assets, the whole idea of how we value things uh, and different assets, non-tangible assets, tangible assets, it's it's almost like it's this big debate that's up for grabs, um, which for me, I'm a bit older than you guys. So maybe I come from it with a little bit of a foot inside uh, a more traditional camp. But, you know, you always get taught 
that you know tangible assets property things like that have uh you know that intrinsic value that you can never be taken away but then you look at what's happened in the markets and you look at happening what's happening in crypto and you start to think maybe those concepts around the tangible nature of of assets isn't necessarily the greatest way to value things i mean i don't know what do you guys think about it i think the uh well i would agree that a lot of people are challenged by uh, the action in certain equities because it doesn't apply to all equities. I mean, people are really just they they where where the discounted cash flow model sort of starts to break down is is really just with tech companies, and then it's you know mostly U.S. tech companies. But then you get sort of the the unicorns in private equity and stuff as well. But I you know I do think it's it is a it is mostly something that is contained to this fascination we have with technology. And I think when you hear people say that fundamentals never matters, that was just a, you know, it was just a myth everybody told themselves. I wonder if that's kind of more indicative of just how far we've gone down this, this old path rather than it uh, being strictly speaking true. Uh, I do think that there is, value in people doing fundamental analysis uh, but i think at the same time the fact that stock pickers in general you know broadly speaking have not been able to beat the market for an awfully long time is also indicative of something kind of broader than that with the rise of passive investing which uh, mm. ultimately punishes uh, people who are trying to use discretion when they're when they're buying certain assets and there's a chap uh, mike green at logica who's done uh, an awful lot of work on that and gives a very compelling argument that the reason why uh, you know we see these this distortion in certain valuations uh, and he points specifically to the underperformance of stock pickers uh, as a more as a symptom of a problem rather than uh, an indication of you know the market being really efficient so mm -hmm. here where i think there was the, an example he gave which i thought was very compelling where if you had a you know a class of of kids and everybody kept failing the class uh, you know, year after year after year, uh, what, you know, they, it's not because the kids are stupid, right? There's something wrong, right? Either the te teacher isn't teaching it or the test is too hard, right? The, the fact that no, like, it's, well, it's not nobody, but there are so few stock pickers that are now able to achieve alpha, you know, it really does, it makes you ask the question, like, what, you know, is the, is the game being rigged to some degree in that the rules you know, the, if passive is just dominating this, uh, you know, so that something's wrong with that. That's not, that doesn't sound like an efficient market. It sounds like a structurally imbalanced one. And uh, I think that's an interesting, uh, you know, I think there's an awful lot uh, to be said for that. I think that is definitely the rise of passive investing and the manner in which everyone now is sort of being coerced into it because, you know, it's low fees. Look at how passive has outperformed as X, Y, and Z over the years. Um, I really do think that's a that's kind of a dangerous path to be going down, but you know at the same time, uh, you know maybe there is maybe there is uh, maybe I think there is something to be said of the power of narrative in in how uh, you know it, it pushes asset prices around and where you know these stocks which have these stories behind them uh, do very very well and can do very well for a sustained period of time. It's not just a bubble dynamic. Uh, you know, there's probably something going on there too. Um, I, I don't, the, we like to look at interest rates. We like to look at uh, quantitative easing measures, uh, you know, the collapse of real returns, uh, you know, and that's all very, uh, that's all very important, but it's, you know, I don't think it's by any means the only thing that's going on. Uh, what would you say about that kid? I mean, what's your, when you see these uh, valuations, I mean, of course we're looking at something like GameStop, which is obviously, you know, very small, um, situation and it's a very short-lived one you know it's a very explosive one but if we were looking at something like tesla or someone or even you know, if you go to things like netflix or apple right um like what what do you think it is that's really driving that yeah it's really interesting hearing you talk about my green stuff and the classroom example is good i mean one of the things that was one of the little hashtags going around reddit and twitter and all the GameStop bros and whatever um was hashtag flows not pros um, and it was almost a sort of rallying cry for if we bandy together, um, you know, we can force our way in and up together. And so by sort of accumulating enough people, 
you can fix a market yourself, um, which is basically what happened for a little while. Um, and it is interesting because I get, when I first came at investment, I thought the most interesting thing was that every company, I, I was only ever interested really in, in equities at the start. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that every company has an intrinsic value that no one can know. Um, but the most interesting thing is not what the company was worth, but what people thought it was worth. So if a company is highly valued and you want to buy it, you have to say why it's even more valuable than everyone already thinks. Um, and what I found interesting is that over a few years of um, working in the industry professionally and taking it much more seriously is the way in which so much focus is given to the first half of that equation. What is the valuation of company of a company, which you can't know anyway. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, it exists, but you can never know it. Um, but very little attention is given to that sort of psychological element, which I think is sort of the most interesting bit, which is what influences people to think certain things about a company or the future. Um, and I guess it's really hard. So you can't sort of DCF, you can't do a discounted cash flow of, you know, future human emotion. Um, but to me, that's always been one of the most interesting things. Um, and this has been a fascinating couple of weeks for seeing that, you know, taken to a great extreme. I mean, that, that's kind of why I've always taken a more of a thematic approach to the way I look at things is because those intangibles uh, and things that you can't quantify, what people believe in, what the, you know, what the socioeconomic situation is of a particular time, uh, you know, period of time, you know, what, what are the, the, the major trends that are pushing how people interact or how people engage with each other and the world around them. Those sorts of things move stocks with much greater impact sometimes than fundamentals do. And if you can latch onto the right one at the right time and find a good in entry and exit point, you can do, you can do very well, which is why I, I, I fucking hate passive investing. Um, it's, it's for boring boomers and no offense to anyone that's a boomer listening to this, but um, my, my, my view is, and, and I think this is reflective of, of generations as well. And this is why Reddit and GameStop and AMC have become such a thing is because you don't get the boomer generation playing that market, or at least it doesn't appear to be that way because they've been, and look, let's, let's not beat around the bush. Um, uh, you know, boomers have been blessed at period of great uh, economic expansion, um, property values, a whole bunch of things. It's just sheer luck. Um, I, I saw a tweet from Dominic Frisbee that was talking about how he became a millionaire. And he said, I was just lucky to be born at the right time and buy property in London when it was piss cheap, basically. Um, and, you know, there's a, there is just an element of luck about that sort of thing. But there's also an element of shit luck for a whole generation uh, of Reddit users and GameStop investors that they've got to find another way to try and build some wealth uh, in their lifetime. And, you know, when most people struggle to get even onto something like a property ladder, um, when, you know, the, the inflation is going to kick in and wage inflation is probably going to lag when we're in a period of great economic uncertainty around the world, uh, it makes sense that the hope and aspirations, the narrative behind a lot of stocks moves them far, far more than any fundamental value does. So Sam, you raised an interesting point there because a lot of discussion around the, the GameStop Reddit crowd thing has, has been drawn out into a sort of wider intergenerational conflict argument of this is nihilism, this is millennials expressing their frustration at the things that we won't get that they had. And the classic example is, you know, you could buy a house in London with a few years of wages, whereas now it takes 15 or, or whatever. Um, but one thing I find really interesting is I think that's a sort of, I wonder if that's a feeling that every generation feels. Um, and there's a classic sort of everything was better in the past idea. But when you look at, um, when you look at the things that we have now as, you know, guys in our twenties and thirties, compared to what our parents had in terms of the quality of amenities of technology of food availability of um all the incredible things that <laughs> a free market economy has delivered um do we you know do millennials really have a case to say that they're so much worse off than everyone who was growing up in the 1960s and 70s 
Well, um, I think this comes yeah, back I don't, to... I don't think it's that simple like, either. Go ahead, yeah, the, sorry. The, I mean, it's like the idea of that you've got a hedonic adjustment and that you can just apply a hedonic adjustment to, uh, you know, between generations. So because, you know, the, you know, we've got Spotify now and we can listen to podcasts. Therefore, the fact that, you know, state pensions... <laughs> like, for subscribe and share. <laughs> the fact that like uh the the quality of things like you know retirement benefits are not pro in all likelihood are not going to be nearly so good for millennials as it were for boomers uh you know that kind of gets put to the side i i think it's very reductive i think it's a not only a reductive argument i think it's generally whenever i've encountered it that's generally an excuse given by a boomer uh to try and sort of explain it away in fact kit you're probably the first person i've ever heard who's uh who's so young to actually say well our lives are better so it's okay i think if you look <laughs> the, uh, if you look at the generation differences right so we're just looking boomer and millennial right if you go further back in time you, you don't end up asking those questions uh the same way so yeah. boomer parents uh you know the greatest generation right? And then their parents, there wasn't the same idea that because, well, we're the younger generation, and we're going to have better, you know, healthcare, and we're going to have better technology, therefore, uh, it's fine that we don't have the same sort of social benefits, we don't have the same, uh, you know, living standards, almost, we don't have the same earning capability. This, this debate, I don't think was, where it has been had or has, well, yeah, I'm sure it was had during generational issues in the past, but I don't think people think about that the same way. You know, so if we look at the people who fought in the Second World War, um, and then the way you know their parents lived, I don't think there was this uh, idea that well, we're the younger generation, so we just got more to do, and you know it's all fine. And then if we look at their generation and their parents, so you're looking at people uh, sort of born. Uh, before the Great Depression, you know, you're looking at people from uh, from the 1800s and that. Uh, I don't think there was this this idea that uh, oh well, you know, we're uh, you know, we're the we're the younger generation, so we've got we've got stuff to do. We've got uh, we've got radios now, as you would in the in the 1920s, uh, or we've got cars now, and you know, there's more people driving cars. Therefore, it's fine. I think this is. I think it's more. I just say it, does, it sounds more like an excuse to me than it does uh, an actual argument for it. And I don't think you'd you'd make that argument in with previous generations. I mean, Sam, what I mean, would you uh, you're, you're nodding away. So I mean, are you would you agree with that? How does it yeah, look I mean, in your perspective as a sixty-year-old man, Sam? Yeah, well, in my in my my wise old age, back in my day, um, I mean, so look, I mean, I don't I don't have any issue with with the, the different generations. But the, the thing I have an issue with is that people don't sometimes acknowledge the element of luck that is thrown on a period of time when people generally have their peak earning capacity. Um, and so for boomers, you know, a lot of them, their peak earning capacity was sort of through the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Um, and it's sort of post the turn of the millennium where they've started to move into... Um, to that end phase of, of working life and have benefited greatly just from, uh, you know, some, 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 some great times. Having said that, there were also some times of very high interest rates, very, you know, there were some issues along there. There were great recessions in there, the wall street crashes. So you know, they've had their fair share of um, problems as well. But like you say, they, I don't think if, if you were born in the fifties, uh, I don't imagine that you would have expected that uh, you would you would have have come into you know a, a you know reasonably stable economic situation if you just did sort of the basics uh, with with wealth. Um, the the difference being is that right now, like Boa said, you know particularly things around pensions, access to pensions, and the way that that's changed. A lot of it's really come from the expansion of fiat money. Uh, basically from the 70s onwards, it, it, the, you know, coming off of the gold standard, a whole, all, those, all the sort of so-called modern uh, evolutions of monetary theory seem to have not worked as intended. And that, I, I, think, I think we'll probably, when we, in another 50 years' time, uh, when I'm reaching the you know, twilight of my life, um, 
we'll probably look back at this period and realize that all the things that central banks were trying to do or thought that they were trying to do were wrong and didn't work and screwed an entire generation of people. Um, and so I think that we're also probably now in the midst of people starting to recognize that that might be the case and looking for new answers as to what, what happens from here going forward. And it's just that millennials might be that stuck generation uh, that just kind of cop the raw end of the stick. Interesting. Yeah. So one thing we didn't cover when we were talking about uh, Bitcoin the last time I was on is my, uh, my amateurish shorthand uh, attempt to value Bitcoin for people who have no understanding of it. Uh, and I said that if you had no idea what it was, you could basically think of it as the value of an idea. And the idea is that central banks don't know what they're doing or that they're doing harm. And the greater that idea grows, the higher Bitcoin's price will go. Um, and that was the sort of first link I tried to draw in people's mind when I was trying to explain it to them. Um, but Sam, I mean, the point I, I come back to is like, millennials are running around saying we can't buy houses and stuff. <laughs> this is me, supposedly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't even start talking about question. avocado on toast. You know, I can see why the Australians go on about it. It's very expensive down there. Um, it's really good, though. <laughs> but I just look at the things that we, you know, that are available to all young people today um, that 30 years ago didn't exist, like laptops and phones and a life expectancy above 80 and incredible healthcare and loads of jobs of an incredible variety and like a million percent more gender equality and no, we're not there yet. But, you know, my mum speaks about how it was kind of remarkable when, you know, she got a job in investment in the 70s and 80s. There, like there, are, definite, there are definite social so I know, I just benefits. Think but, 30 but wealth wealth benefits are a different story, I think. Yeah, of course, that there, there, are, there are issues that go around it, but I suppose I just, I've got to admit, I don't buy into the the broad generational complaint of millennials versus boomers. I think the boomers have bequeathed a world of, you know, more equality and more opportunity and more life expectancy and more incredible, you know, wealth and technology and everything than they ever had when they were our age. And so, yeah, and look, let's not forget they built a lot of the world that we actually live in right now. So I, I think you actually raised another really interesting point there. Thanks, Sam. And this is, this is something that I've talked about for a while. I'm interested on your, you guys and your take on how maybe this affects, uh, you know, the next, so what are we talking about? Probably the next, yeah, sort of 30, 40 years, uh, is that eventually we all die. And we're going to get to a phase where the baby boomer generation start to kind of drop off en masse. So there's going to be an extremely substantial wealth transfer uh, from them to these generations. I mean, does that just keep things? Are we now just looking at generation after generation wealth transfer or, or do people, or does the next generation just piss it away? Okay. So I think this is, we've obviously, you know, stumbled upon a great mine of conversation here, uh, <laughs> but before we do continue, before we continue, uh, we the should voice of reason. what beers would just, uh, just, uh, before we really get into it, Kit, uh, what do you, what do you, what do you want today? I'm just writing something down. I'm writing down $30 trillion wealth transfer for after this beer conversation. <laughs> that would actually be a good, a good name for a beer. Mind you, this is also the first time anyone's actually taken notes on one of our podcasts. Yeah, no, I, must say. I took notes last time. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, I'm drinking uh, the Gypsy Hill Brewery's Bandit beer. Uh, I tried to annoy Burr's last time uh, with the small beer, which was sustainably brewed and low vol. Um, not in that way, obviously. Yeah, um, this time I just I found I don't know if people are watching this, but if you are, I think this no, is no. It's a podcast. The sort of general gist is people listen. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I was trying to just go with it. Anyway, it it, it looks like bars in lockdown one. Go and buy yourself a bandit from Gypsy Hill Brewery, and you'll know what I mean. Um, but yeah, yeah I, it's delicious. It, it's, it's a triple. It's meta Boaz. It's so Boaz it hurts. <laughs> It's quite remarkable that uh, so many people have told me that this beer uh, looks like me, this label. Um, I must say, I'm, you know, it's, it's not a bad looking fellow they put on the front of that beer. So, you know, I'm okay with it. Are but, you uh, yeah, uh, three, Boaz? 
both my uh, both my brother and my sister-in-law both said it looked like me, and I think there was someone else as well who had who had banned it. In fact, yeah, I think a friend of mine actually was like, "This looks like you," and uh, you know, it's not a bad beer either. So I'm I'm okay with uh, Bandit by Gypsy Hill looking like me on the front, or at least looking like me in lockdown one. But uh, Sam, we are both drinking the same thing at the moment. Indeed, uh, this is Space Operator uh, Idaho Seven IPA by Whiplash. What do you make of it? Uh, so I, I, I actually quite enjoyed that. I mean, that's, that's a really, that's a, I mean, it's a pretty bog standard India IP, India pale ale IPA. Um, but I, uh, it, so it's got the Idaho seven, uh, in it, which, which we've had a number of beers have that, uh, have that in them, that hop in them. Um, I enjoyed that a lot, actually. It was, it was, it looked like custard. I mean, when I poured it into the glass, it, ha- it definitely had a, a sort of thickness <laughs> about it, which, um, which might have been, I, I don't know, or something in there. Uh, but yeah, as I said, it looked like custard. Tasted great. It's six point eight percent, so it's right in that sweet spot that I am adamant we will find the greatest beer of all time in. Um, I, I enjoyed that. Um, I'll give that. I'd give that a B which is a, a good rating. I've just realized that this beer, I think this, this is one of the first beers in quite a long time, uh, which don't advertise that it's suitable for vegans. <gasps> so I can only assume that somehow or other there is animal product in this thing. Yeah, we've got, uh, it's unfiltered, non-pasteurized, but, and they have put the allergens in. However, I don't see a, a vegan thing. So, who do you think knows? it's because Maybe it there's... contains what they call Maris otter, which I'm assuming is not an actual <laughs> otter, but you know, it otter could be extract. It could be otter extract. <laughs> Concentrate of otter. Yeah, well, that would certainly make this quite certainly make quite interesting. Uh, it does taste very nice, though. Um, I would probably give this. You know, as you say, it's not it's nothing crazy, but it's in the sweet spot with the ABV. Mm. um 3.0 just on the dot uk units i think i think i'd give this a b i think i'd give it a b okay well how would you rate yours how do you rate gypsy my uh you know my flagship beer <laughs> well it's got to be in the b category doesn't it how could it not does, be? does it <laughs> uh it's called a bandit and it looks like boas so there's two b's already um <laughs> I would say as pale ales go, it was pretty standard. I liked it because I liked pale ales. I wasn't drinking it thinking, this is a smashing pale ale, just like Boaz. But more, this is all right. Nice. So, so what's it going to be? Well, I, I'm yet to get a full handle on the rating system, but it's a bandit and it's like Boaz, so I'm going to give it a double B. Oh, oh wow. That's generous. Oh, my. Wait, is that higher or lower than a B? That's, that's, yeah, su- that's substantially higher. higher. Okay, no, <laughs> it can be a single B. <laughs> as you can see, every, as everyone can, can attest, this is the most complex and convoluted rating system that we've ever, that I think has probably ever been used in, in any kind of uh, situation. So, uh, as you can see, yeah, I'm going to make the, I will, I will get the infographic done that makes this all very clear. <laughs> Uh, it's getting contact with them. Um, is it visual capitalist that, that great site yes. that does those great infographics? Yes. We should commission one from visual capitalist. <laughs> uh, but no, it will, it will be done. And for any, for, for to clear any confusion, we'll pin it to the top of our Twitter feed to ensure that there's no, uh, no confusion. Uh, but, oh, well, it's very good to have uh, gypsy, uh, well, gypsy Hill brewing and bandit at, uh, you know, it's good to have a B on that. Especially as uh, it would be absolutely awful if there was a label of me on a on a beer and uh, and it was you know triple A minus or something that would be really it would be really bad for the brand. That would be. Gents, what, uh, I think that would be what you'd call an unfortunate series of events. All right, now, gentlemen, let's uh, let's return to the topic at hand, which was the generation war. Now, I was very interested to hear uh, Kit say he's not he's not much of a believer in the uh, in the general uh, narrative when it comes to boomer v millennial and it's a very uh, it's a very interesting kind of dynamic that it certainly seems to have taken hold from the whole gamestop saga uh where you've got the wall street bets guys saying you know 
Um, I'm not going to be able to buy a house, but I am going to be able to destroy the short seller and then become a millionaire <laughs> and then buy a house kind of thing. Um, I mean, I, I generally favor the fourth turning idea. Uh, it is a very good book. Uh, I believe that a lot, of what it's, a lot of what it reveals is true, even though it's focusing on American society. It's also Anglo-American society as well. Uh, because he did, because there, were, there, were, there was a lot of similarities where the, in the era of colonialism with the generations and the like. So you, there, is, there are comparisons going on there. I think the, to a certain degree they're, they're true over here. But the question is, uh, you know, just how much of it really is true when they're talking about uh, generational conflict? Because ultimately in the fourth turnering, uh, you know, he says the, the older generation will make the sacrifices necessary to save the younger generation every time there is a, there is a big enough crisis, which is interesting because that doesn't seem to be sort of the boomer attitude, which until now has been to vote yourself all the things that you want uh, while you're in your prime. Uh, and then it's the kids problem to, to kind of deal with. So I'll be interested to see how that kind of resolves itself. Um, but Kit, in terms of you know, the, when you're talking about things like wealth disparity. So in the UK, obviously, is a very big property culture and getting on the property ladder. I mean, when you're looking at people trying to buy houses who are, who are youngsters, uh, obviously, their parents, it was an awful lot easier. I mean, how, what's your take on that? I mean, what do you think has really driven that problem? Well, it's really interesting that the Reddit story, this is what I mean, in that it was, it was much bigger than just GameStop. Um, so I'd say it's a fairly well-rehearsed narrative now that, that I would say, and that I guess you guys would agree with to an extent, which is that um, central banks, by putting interest rates very low um, and pumping money into the system through quantitative easing, have done a great job of inflating asset prices. So houses and financial assets primarily. And those things were already owned by the rich coming out of the financial crisis. So, you know, the stock market has had a fantastic 12 years. House prices have had a fantastic years. If you already own those things, incredibly well done to you. Um, but at the same time, wages have massively underperformed. So there has been that, you know, the K-shaped recovery probably started in 2009. Everyone's certainly just talking about it now. Um, and to bring that back around to the, the wealth distribution thing, if you imagine now that there's a sort of, a millennial class or a wage earner class um, fighting against the boomer and the asset owner class. Those are probably two quite similar things. When there's wealth inequality between two established groups, there are two ways to redress it. And the best way is obviously for the lower group to catch up. But 12 years on, that's not happened. And this little Reddit surge is, you know, is a bit of a, a gas escaping the pressure valve of if, you know, if we're not going to catch up, you guys can catch down as well. You know, there's more than one way for this to happen. And that was just, a, it felt to me like there was an expression of that feeling of, you know, if we can't have it, then you, you know, why do you get it? You know, trying to sort of redress the wealth inequality in a negative fashion. Um, but yeah, one thing as Sam mentioned was that the inheritance thing is actually, you know, I alluded to it was, it's on the front cover of the ESG handbook. You know, the, the driving idea of ESG is now that millennials believe in it and that over the next two decades, they are estimated um, to inherit $30 trillion worth from the baby boomer generation. Um, and so they are going to become the dominant asset owner class, um, whether they like it or not. Um, and so that, you know, the argument there is, they'll invest it more sustainably, they'll divest from oil companies and you sort of get ahead of the biggest flow of all time. Um, hashtag flows, not pros. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, I, I do think that, that that sort of narrative of central banks forcing the K-shaped recovery since 2009 is, is a very powerful one and a very concerning one. Um, and it leads to a very interesting question of whether you know, a 4% interest rate would be a short-term pain, but perhaps, you know, could there be a just crash? Could there be a just recession? Yeah, the right. recession a, a we had to have. <laughs> a righteous recession. Yeah, it has to be done. Yeah. In, in Australia, in, in, the Robin Hood recession, lads, it's perfect. I, it's pretty in, in Australia in the 90s, that it was it was known as the recession we had to have. Maybe, maybe that comes around full mm. circle and we, and, and it's not obviously just Australia this time, but it's globally. There's the recession that we have to have. 
Well, I mean, they were, uh, they were telling the Greeks that, well, the Germans were telling the Greeks that uh, after the Eurozone <laughs> debt crisis, uh, though I don't think it went down very well. Uh, so I'm not sure it would be very successful. However, it is interesting. Uh, I do find that quite interesting, Kit, the, uh, the ESG thing, right? Because when you're talking about what you know, millennials choosing to divest in oil assets, when you're talking about, uh, you know, I, I, what is it? It's like it's more than 30% would, willing, would not want to own any money in anything that could be seen as contributing to climate change, I believe. Uh, it was, uh, it's quite a, quite a statistic. It's quite a quote. Um, but uh, I think I you see I attribute that mostly to the fact that millennials, uh, you know, it's in the name, right? We're, we're quite a young generation, so the idea of retirement is an incredibly long way off, and so we're not thinking very realistically ultimately about retirement, what it really means for retirement. And at the same time, I don't think the vast majority of people, you know, people generally, let alone millennials, especially millennials, in fact, uh, really realize just how much of the prosperity that they experience and the quality of life they experience is a result of fossil fuels. Uh, just how much energy is required, how much energy must be expended just for us to you know, uh, have nice, smart devices and to be able to travel places and uh, eat exotic foods and uh, you know, live quite cheaply with you know, relatively little stuff, you know, groceries. And, uh, cheap. You should probably also you know, note I that all, this, I think all, all those clothes, all those clothes on Boohoo and uh, ASOS uh, and Pretty Little Thing, uh, they're, not, they're not powered by green energy. I'll just throw that one in there too. Yeah, uh, screw all of those companies. Like uh, just <laughs> complete, yeah, just amoral uh, Amoral entities that that they don't really exactly fall into the ESG really category, do they? Well, Bert, no, they don't. But I don't think. You'd, uh... sorry. Oh, sorry, Karen. Okay. I was just gonna, presuming you've seen the film Local Hero, but I have not. No, have you? I've not? never heard of it. You've never heard of the film Local Hero? Oh, it's phenomenal. It's one of the greatest films of all time. Um, you know, a junior at a big American oil company is sent to scout out a Scottish seaside town that the old yeah i already know why i've not seen it it sounds like a cliche already this is what this is what english people think of scotland no thank you i'm fine no buzz you you completely misunderstood um anyway the man the american junior exec goes over and he's completely charmed by scotland uh, and all of its lovely people um but yeah they they spend a nice moment walking along the beach just talking about all of the amazing things the oil has achieved or offered um and yeah i think one of the important points about divestment is that what it probably leads to is oil not being produced and the people who are going to suffer most from that are the people who still need to develop so developed nations benefit most or need oil to sort of catch up with our living standards in the west and the incredibly virtuous and moral divestment movement all these students trying to get their colleges out of you know shell and bp probably don't realize that what they're doing is actually harming the development chances of the worst off in the world. Um, and I don't know, it seems like one of those things that hasn't been thought through all the way. Well, I mean, I, I agree with, I think with most of that, but I think, I don't think it, I don't think it necessarily leads to a lack of, uh, a lack of investment elsewhere in the world. I mean, it's only, ultimately, it's only the ability of the uh, companies in general to raise capital. If, the, if that is ultimately hindered, then that's why the less developed nations in the world aren't going to be able to, to you know, reap, the, uh, reap the prosperity that energy can achieve. So while I think uh, there are a lot of you know, students, ultimately, uh, in this country who are campaigning for their university endowments to disinvest uh, to divest of uh, all the oil majors, I think there are enough people who have their heads screwed on straight who are still willing ultimately to uh, you know to to lend the you know lend companies and to and to invest in the capital of these companies. Though it definitely does do an awful lot of uh, you know bad things for the share prices. I mean, ultimately, I see it more as more as an opportunity. I don't think the ESG movement in trying to push divestment from oil companies ultimately it's actually going to stop this at all because less developed areas of the world, like, you know, they want energy. They want to expand energy uh, because they want, they want all of the great things that we have. We've already got over here. 
And as a result, they're going to get it because the companies aren't going to stop giving them it, provided it's economic for them to, economical for them to do it. And I think it still is. Right? I don't think that's changed. So I think that's going to happen, whether the very you know, politically engaged people who have gone to uh, <laughs> or at university, you know, whether or not they like it, uh, there are people out there who actually want to improve their standard of living and they're going to get it. And they're, very, and they're a lot more motivated than the people in this country are. So I think they are going to get it. Uh, but it's just going to be an inconvenient truth that they don't want to recognize. And so they'll try and fight against it with, oh, no, our, that your pensions should not be funded by BP or Royal Dutch Shell or uh, Saudi Aramco, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to be enough because uh, ultimately people, people want to do better for themselves. They want to they earn, they want to provide for their families. Uh, and all that you're doing is in saying that you can't do that you know, capital cannot be, we can't own these shares. It's allowing those shares to be bought at a lower price, which comes back to our earlier conversation of, you know, how do you value a company? You know, anyone that buys these shares must have a more positive view on it. And if you, if you imagine that a lot of people are being forced to sell their shares because uh, there are a lot of politically motivated actors who think that, the, that these, are, these things are hazardous to own, well, then it's a lot easier for somebody to step in and say, I think the future is better for this company than this price reflects. Um, but Sam, actually, I, I realize we haven't actually introduced our second beer yet. And this second beer is from, you know, it's from Australia. Indeed, I believe it's even from, uh, from Sam's area of Australia. It has a very nice label indeed called Out Too Far, which I think would, uh, I think that's a pretty, mm. good, uh, pretty good phrase to describe a lot of action in uh, markets recently, Out Too Far. It's a coastal saltbush hazy pale. I've never heard the word saltbush uh, associated <laughs> with beer ever, but it is a very nice, a very nice level indeed. It's got a, a somebody swimming uh, in a black sea, and a sort of scraped out sort of um, what would be the word like castaway font on it. Uh, but it is mm. from it is from Australia. It is from a place called Orbost or Orbost. And uh, yeah, this is, uh, it, it has alternate capitalization. So always store cold. That's capital A, capital S, and then a small C. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's tasting pretty good so far. Sam, what do you make of it? Yeah, so it's, uh, the brewery here is uh, Sailor's Grave Brewing, which is, yeah, as you say, in Orbost or Orbost, uh, which is, it's in Victoria. So Victoria is one of the states of, uh, of Australia much like the counties uh, here in the UK, uh, except when you sort of say my area, um, I'm, I'm from, from Melbourne originally. And while the state with the state of Victoria hosts both Melbourne and Orbost, uh, Orbost is about a four and a half hour drive away from, uh, from Melbourne, which is within Just the same door. state. So it's practically around the corner. Um, and it's a coastal town just past Lakes entrance. So it is, it is a, it is a, visually stunning part of uh of the country uh, and on the coast so the coastal salt bush would no doubt be referring to uh some of the terrain i would imagine that you would get down that way um but hazy pal again the 5.5 percent abv uh just a small little can this one but um I, I to be fair when we chose this i didn't know it was from uh out my way so to speak but yeah hazy ipa um it is hazy it's not it's weird it's not quite as um it's not quite as custody, I suppose, as the uh, IPA that we had before. Um, but yeah, I suppose you wouldn't expect that from a hazy IPA. A little bit more um, effervescent, I suppose. Um, but so far, so good. Uh, enjoying this one. So uh, not too long before I neck this one and down it and finish it off. So good start so far from, uh, and, and okay, maybe a little bias kicks in, but you know, stuff it. <laughs> <laughs> Kev, what are you drinking? Uh, well, along similar themes the last time, uh, I followed up my attempt to annoy bars with a with a tall German <laughs> bottle. Uh, last time it was the um, it was a sh uh, an extra strong version of the Augustina. This time it's a, a Dunkel beer, so a dark beer. It's a Dunkel from down in Bavaria, uh, but from Tegernsee, uh, which is a lake outside Munich, which I've been to a couple of times actually, which is why it caught my eye. It's got the beautiful Bavarian flag endorsing the label. That um, is a good flag. That is a good as, flag. As I said, you know, I think I said last time I lived in Munich for a month and it was the first beer I learned to, you know, genuinely enjoy as a, you know, late teenager. 
Um, so that sort of, you know, the tall, thick glass bottle that comes in crates, um, the, the similarity of many German beers because of their quite standardized uh, laws that have been around for a few Purity years. laws. The Reinheitsgebot. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, no. I, 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 get the, I get the feeling that if we three were to appear in Bavaria, uh, just on our, on our physical appearance alone, without having to actually speak a word of any sort of language, we would fit in quite well. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I speak it fluently, so don't you worry, Sam. I'll look after you. But, um, Good. That means we are absolutely going to do a live broadcast of this podcast from Oktoberfest <laughs> at some point. Oh, well, that would be good. Have either of you been? Twice. <laughs> no, never. You're oh, the odd one out here. But once it's not me. I know. I, I have actually been tempted to go on the fa- in the past. I remember a former colleague of mine uh, was telling me that at Oktoberfest, uh, were, he, he alluded to the fact that you know, there was a lack of preservatives in these beers. And that meant that you never got a hangover, no matter oh, how much well, you drank it. The man's Which right I thought was... That is not true. My only <laughs> ever day. <laughs> never, I've never. Oh, no, no, no. He was there for a, he was there for a long time. Like no, I mean two day hangover. Um, so yeah, the purity laws is sort of you can only have water, barley, and hops, or whatever, because they hadn't discovered yeast in fifteen sixteen or I think that's when it was. Um, but the Oktoberfest beers is the six main breweries of Munich, um, and they yeah, yeah, I know. They brew these Oktoberfest specials, which are double strength. But you know, as a nineteen year old or however old I was when I went, I had no yeah. idea. I almost got arrested trying to smuggle out an authentic stain from the, um, uh, I can't remember which tent it was, but the police weren't particularly happy with my attempts to poorly smuggle it under a shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Now, actually, now speaking of beer and speaking of of countries with beer, I will note that the the other thing I've been looking at at the market, particularly today, actually, uh, is a little mini resurgence in the British pub stocks because uh, it appears that the vaccination rollout in the UK is weirdly uh, leading the world, which is not something you often hear uh, when it comes to the British, the British government. Uh, and it feels like the market has once again decided that we shall all once again return to thy pub. Uh, and it's been an interesting little, it's been a good day for pub stocks. And I wonder if, I wonder if uh, you know, if we're starting to finally see in the UK market all these COVID-beaten sectors actually now resurge or surge back to to where they were and and return to that normal level. I mean, have you guys sort of seen much of the action this week in those sectors? I've not, I've not actually watched it, but I'm 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 pleased by the optimism of the of the market, uh, though. Frankly, considering the government's uh, behaviour regarding the hospitality industry, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I fear it's too optimistic. Um, I really, considering the, their actions, it, it doesn't seem to me that there would be much, seeming that, you know, as there's been zero slack given to pubs, it seems to me strange that they would suddenly, they would allow something like pubs to be opened soon before everything else would get opened i mean i hope it's the case uh, i think uh, pubs are uh, you know i think it's a, a travesty what's been done but uh, i yeah i mean I hope, I hope the market's right ultimately i mean i i wonder i mean so we when we talk about we talk about tech and we talk about how there's these great discrepancies in fundamental value with belief and the narrative and the story behind it and the, the, the trend and the momentum behind a lot of these stocks. It's, I find it, it's a fascinating insight into how investors look at stocks in the market for me when they, they don't apply the same sorts of uh, narrative to other sectors or other industry that aren't as sexy as tech. It's kind of like, if it if it hasn't if it doesn't capture the the imagination uh, and hopes and dreams, then it kind of almost feels like it falls to the wayside. And I wonder if that's just is that if that's a byproduct of a generational thing, or whether it's a byproduct of the particular period that we're in right now, uh, and and does that or does that you know does that come back? Do, do people start to go? You know what? 
non-sexy stocks are actually sexy investments. I think, I think it's, it's something, well, I should kick on. Oh, well, I was going to say, I, th I think it, that is one of those sort of cyclical things where one of the things I looked at this way was just that analogy of, I had someone describing um, how the green investment bubble was going to end in tears, just like it did last time, which was the solar boom of the late 2000s. Um, and it really got me thinking just about this whole idea of things ending in tears. And I went all the way into behavioral economics, that experiment you do where you put your hand in the bucket um, and people who have their hand in the bucket for twice as long, but it goes up by sort of two degrees while it's in there. Um, they talk about it being more pleasant or better than a slightly colder but shorter version because you remember how things end. So the fact that things ended slightly warmer makes people feel better about the experience. Um, and that phrase where people say it ended in tears is so common and it's such a big reason for putting people off um, bubbles very early um or bull markets very early i guess you could say because they just remember how things ended um and i think you know in three years time or a few years time or however long it takes if this everything bubble crashes and all the sexy stocks the beyond meats and the teslas and the neos and whatever else people remember losing all their money on that stuff professional managers and retail investors alike um and i think that takes maybe a full cycle to grow and then suddenly as you say it, you know, sexy isn't even a narrative anymore. People care about values and fundamentals and good balance sheets. And so your Marston's and your um, price to earnings ratios and all these kind of things, dividend yields, they start to matter again, um, more than the narrative or the attraction of a stock. <laughs> Do you remember when people used to invest in stocks for dividend yield? It feels like a, a, a fucking lifetime ago. <laughs> Why do you need those, bro? Have you not heard of capital gains? <laughs> <laughs> not inside an ISA. Yeah, I think some, somebody's missing out on the growth narrative here. It's got, it's got to be growth, mate. You, uh, you just need to give your money to somebody else for a long enough period of time and it will compound away. And by the end of it, they will have conquered the world. And that's how the, uh, that's the leprechaun uh, a method for, for, growing, for growing wealth, I think, so. Oh, it works. I had a question. Thank <laughs> There's, there's a period of time where you used to be able to get a pretty solid 8% uh, dividend yield on some reasonably blue chip stocks and still have capital appreciation in there. It would probably take your overall gain into double digits year on year. Roll that out over 30 years and you're laughing. That used, to be, the that used to be the boring way to invest. Mm. Well, it's just the idea that that's been sort of uh, effectively with private equity. Uh, I mean, the idea is that you give them the money and it will compound itself and give you capital gains, but without you ever having the dividends. I mean, that, like the idea is that you're well, almost- Well, the dividends used to be that. reinvested, used to be DIP programs, right? Where you just eventually yeah, build yeah. up your portfolio anyway. Yeah, yeah there the still are now. Yeah, yeah. no, it's just, hmm. it's just the, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying it's in jest. I mean, so it's a mocking, but it's the idea that simply, <laughs> effectively, if you're going for a private equity, it's the idea that it's all done for you, right? The, except you just never get the dividends until the end when you cash out. This has all just been sort of, well, you don't need the money because, well, there's not high inflation. There's only low inflation. Interest rates aren't going to go up for the foreseeable future. So why would you need the dividends? You know, just, just give it to these guys. They'll compound it through their R&D and through the growth of the company. And then at the end, when you cash out, you'll get it all back. Um, well, sorry, Kit, I think you were, you were going to interject with something. Oh, it was only a very gentle question. I was thinking how a lot of people define themselves as an investor. Like, I'm a great investor or I'm a value investor or at least those people are labeled like that. And I was going to ask if you guys had to define yourself as, you know, investors. I don't even no. define myself as an investor at all. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I never, you know, who am I? Um, I'm an investor. <laughs> None of us really know what we're doing, let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, for me, it does, it's, if I, I, think, I think it's naive to, to, to take one view on how to invest and just run with that one view because they all work yeah, my, at, in periods of time, different periods of time. My, my name is Boaz Shoshan and I am an investor. Sorry, alcoholic, <laughs> wrong feeling. Sorry guys. Like, who is it that actually thinks solely of themselves as an investor? Uh, that is, imagine if that was, that was really how you summed yourself whoever, up. Whoever appears as a guest on CNBC, that's who. Hmm. 
I'm not a venture capitalist. I thought they were all about the VCs over there. Well, actually, I think I think in order to qualify um, to be a so-called investor, uh, you have to own at least half a wardrobe of uh, of Gillets. I think that's that's damn. I don't have a. As, thing. As, I don't own. Mind you, as I as I speak as My I speak, sitting here in a Ralph Lauren fucking gelée. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, what was it? Uh, oh no, it's got to be. What was the name of it? Uh, da, 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 da. What's the name of the brand that was? Oh, everyone in Silicon Valley wears. I was in uh, one of those hiking or mountain. Is, what, mountain Patagonia. Yeah, what, what's, it, what's it called? Why, uh, Patagonia. Patagonia. Yeah, yeah. Patagonia Gilets, and they stopped yeah. giving them to Silicon Valley firms because they were seen as <laughs> not ESG effectively. Yeah, Patagonia. Nothing like a, nothing they, like like a good sweatshop gelée sure to break your ESG title. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Patagonia uses Xinjiang cotton. I mean, like it's it's all just a it's all just a virtue signal. Like it's not it's not actually rooted in any principle. It's just ridiculous. But Kit, let me guess. You have three gelées. <laughs> That All right. A, I've got, I have precisely 0% of my investment funds in Gillette. <laughs> I'm very pleased to hear it. I'm sure. If anything, I'm sure Gillette. I'm sure Gillette as well. If it I looks get, like I mean, Sam is, is covering us. He's making up for it. Well, yeah. I don't actually, I don't even know if what I'm wearing counts as a Gillette. This is like a sleeveless hoodie, not really a Gillette. Damn, Damn, you have, doesn't it have to be that shiny um, polyester material or whatever those chalets? You on the football team once? Yeah, mm. I used to play American football. I actually was on the football team once. Uh, you're going to be watching the Super Bowl, I assume, Sam. Who's going to win? Uh, yes, we. I will be watching the Super Bowl. I um, uh, look. I think. I think. I think Kansas City is going to win it. Uh, but shit, man, I fucking love to see tom brady win it so the bucks hadn't made the playoffs for like nine seasons brady leaves the pats comes to the bucks bang playoffs bang super bowl in tampa bay as well like this is cinderella story kind of shit um i would love nothing more than to see the bucks win the super bowl but i think kansas city will do it well or carry on kid I was going to say, well, I'm, I'm waking up at four in the morning to watch Joe Root just try and get to double hundred. So uh, I don't even really know what Sam's talking about. We come from different places. Indeed. Buzz, can I ask you something? Yeah, go for it. You mentioned Xinjiang and it reminded me of, uh, of something I wanted to ask you last time because, um, you know, in our work together, I, I found out about everything that's been happening in Xinjiang and the devastating stuff that's coming out of there from you. And I'm, it's one thing I'm grateful for. Um, and you've really led the way on this. So well done. Um, but one thing I have wanted to ask you actually for a little while um, is that how, you know, you're very critical of China for a lot of ways, but China is it, possible to say has maybe done more to alleviate poverty and human suffering in the last 30 years than, than maybe any other country and sort of what they've achieved in terms of increasing the wealth of a billion people um, is kind of remarkable. How do you factor that in to how you feel about it as a, as a country having agreed and lauded all of your, your other work on it? Well, thank you for that kit. Uh, I think arguably when you look at the rapid growth of China and everybody lauding, of course, a billion people taken out of poverty in such a short period of time, I think really what that's reflecting is the fact that uh, China and the Chinese people were held back from prosperity deliberately by the Chinese Communist Party who did not want to engage in any capitalistic practice. Uh, this is noted like, so you look at, so imagine if, for example, North Korea, suddenly liberalized uh, tomorrow, right? You'd see you know, a lot of people suddenly get an awful lot wealthier because markets would clear, labor would suddenly be allowed to be productive, people would earn decent wages, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, so if you saw that the, uh, you know, the, the Communist Party of North Korea say, you know, they did this, oh, wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're definitely responsible for that. Yeah, they, they get to take, they get to get a trophy 
for uh, bringing so many people out of poverty. No, they were the people who were holding them back. Those were, they, these guys, all they did was allow people to be employed. They allowed you know, trade to occur. The, it's, uh, it's, if you were holding people back from uh, engaging with the outside world, as China did under Mao, uh, and you know the, the West also did not, you know, deliberately didn't want to engage as well. So it's you know it's it's not entirely one thing or the other. But the Chinese Communist Party was, you know, you know they were collectivizing people. They were taking, uh, you know, they were seizing the means of production, et cetera, et cetera. They were putting people onto all these collectivized, uh, you know, units where they were making military equipment in completely the wrong environment that would even be conducive to making military equipment. Uh, the, all of all that happened was the commies stopped interfering as much like that's all they did they're not that doesn't mean they get to take the you know they get to take the trophy of oh by the way all these people aren't in poverty anymore because i stopped holding them back now, therefore therefore it was me that did it and i deserve a nobel peace prize right it doesn't all that happened was they stopped interfering and they shouldn't have been interfering anyway i would say so to me, uh, when you say China, I mean, it's the Chinese people, are, you know, started earning money. They started, you know, uh, they, they stopped being held back by their government. And uh, I, I mean, it's, the, it's the, the, the labor of the Chinese people isn't something that, you know, should be taken away from them, nor should it be taken, you know, should the commies, the CCP, be taking credit for that. All that happened was the, the CCP allowed them to trade more. And they allowed them to trade more in a manner which actually, you know, which actually benefited uh, the CCP. I mean, it, it uh, benefited their strategic interests. And they deliberately, you know, undervalued their own currency uh, in order to, you know, to increase that strategic interest. So, you know, arguably the CCP would have made them far richer had they not undervalued the yuan, right? They were, their people would have grown more. The, the poverty would have been alleviated even more had they allowed the yuan to float or at least not deliberately undervalued it in order to hoard dollars. Um, but I mean, that would, be, that, that would be my sort of gut response to, to your question, Kid. I mean, would you say, is that, has that answered your question? Yeah, it, it definitely has. It is, it is definitely a, a really good answer. Um, I suppose I would say in, in at least a sense, I feel like there was a noted change of tack um with the departure of Mao and Deng Xiaoping so it wasn't exactly the same people and there was a slight uh, and, and maybe palpable change of tack um but yeah no Boaz thanks for that it's something you know maybe we'll talk about it more another time but um it's always interesting to get your views on those things no uh anytime anytime yes uh, but gentlemen it has been we have been at this for quite a while uh Sam I must say this beer uh, you know, from your neck of the woods, be it four-hour drive away. <laughs> you know, this is actually remarkably good. good. I think this is one of good. the best ones I've had for a while. Because, yeah, it uh, is. <laughs> I mean, there may be a, a certain aspect of bias with, with Sam's review. I, I, I was sensing that from the get-go when we had... Well, that's why you should give yours first, I, I feel. Okay, Gentlemen okay. First. Well, I mean, I have... Uh, in previous podcasts, you know, just in the recent history, uh, I, you know, they haven't been that great. Uh, the, I, if uh, memory serves, Basque Land was was criminally was very not good. Uh, yeah, criminally Basque. Yeah, I Basque Land's brewery was was really not good for me. However, this one, I think this is the best one I've had in a while. So I think I'm going to give this actually a double B, a double Excellent. B. It was very refreshing. Um, I've never seen the sort of coastal salt bush, as Sam says. It's probably uh, uh, probably a, a plant that grows nearby over there. Coastal salt bush hazy pale, but very nice indeed. I really did like that. Uh, very refreshing, and it does have a kind of flavor that is memorable. It's not your average hazy pale. There is yeah. definitely something. Maybe it's that salt bush that gives it this kind of edge, which is memorable. So I'd actually highly recommend it. That Sailor's Grave Brewing. And it's called Out Too Far. And it's got a great can as well. Sam, how would you rate that? Yeah, look, I, I'm with you. It's, it's really good. Um, taking bias aside, um, I think store it cold. Uh, I think that's the best way to, to enjoy it is when it is nice and nice and cold. Uh, very much enjoyed that as well. It's really good, uh, as, as you say, hazy pale, hazy pale owl. Um, I, I wouldn't give it a full double B. I'll give it a double B minus, which is still pretty close. 
Um, but a very enjoyable beer that I would, I would absolutely drink again. And Kit, how, how would you rate your Bavarian beer? I assume you have had it before. I've never had it before. Not this, not this Tegan's A Dunkel export version. Um, and I've got to be honest, I love it. It's got a, a depth and a heartiness um, that you can't get with many beers. Um, and one thing that's really cool that I spotted in tiny letters below the image on the label uh, is, is actually from the Benedictine cloister on Tegernsee that was founded in the year 746, um, <laughs> which is always quite cool. Um, but no, it really is. It's, it's a dark, hearty and delicious beer. And I'm going to give it a double B with all conviction. Oh, wow. There you oh, go. very good. Very good. Uh, it does seem like Kit is the most optimistic of us when it comes to uh, when it comes to reviewing the beers, which By is somewhere. good. I mean, I'll be dragging our average beer beer rating up, <laughs> even if uh, even if I suspect that some of Kit's ratings may have an asterisk beside them. It's uh, <laughs> it's I'm very not good to I didn't just score my beers in penalties. Come on. Very good. Very good. Well, gentlemen, uh, that does sum up our, uh, our 32nd episode of BBB. Kit, thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you, Kit. Uh, it's been very good to have you on. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, that will be, uh, that's us for this week. We shall be back again next week. We've got episode 33 coming up, which, uh, which we should herald with some kind of special occasion. Once again, we shall be drinking, uh, Sam and I shall be drinking the same beers. Uh, but we shall be back then. If you want to listen to this, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, do be sure to give us a follow on Twitter in the meantime. It's booze, booms and busts. And uh, yes, we shall be, uh, we'll be back in a week's time. See you later.